0: Today, as we're continuing to look at the Apostles' Creed, we're going to be considering one of the most controversial and yet one of the most important tenets of the Christian faith, and that is our affirmation that we believe that Jesus Christ will come again to judge both the living and the dead. Now, you know, The Lord has put within our hearts a longing for things to be different than what they are today. As we look around, we see chaos. We see people hating one another. We see people not getting along with each other. We see uh, people just trying to hurt each other when really what they really want is peace. And uh, it doesn't make any sense unless we look at it from the scriptural standpoint, and that is the thief comes but to kill and to steal and to destroy. And if there's one thing he's doing in the world today, it is he is killing, he is stealing, and he is destroying. And man's inhumanity against man uh, just never ceases. And yet we have had this longing for it to cease ever since the Garden of Eden. God has implanted the memory within us of the way that he really wants things to be. Our creator has put this longing in our hearts for a perfect place. And saved or unsaved, we all long for peace on earth, don't we? We long for people to get along with each other. Now, in Scripture, the word judge means much more than just passing judgment. It means to rule over. And this seems to be one of the things that's really bringing about uh, a great division in our country and in the world today. As I was preparing this message, I remembered my good friend Bruce Olson, and I remember him sharing with us while he was staying at our house, shortly after he was released from uh, his communist captors, about the problem that they had with him. He was a missionary to the Motelon Indians, and communist guerrillas had captured him in Colombia, and they were holding him for ransom. Now, the thing is, Bruce loved his captors. They, he said they kept him tied to a tree like a dog, and they would station young men to be guards over him. They couldn't have been much over 16 if they were over 16 years of age, and as he visited with these young men, he discovered that they had high ideals, that they, they wanted good in the world. They wanted good for their country. And they thought that that good was going to be found in communism and in the works or in the writings of Karl Marx. And yet they could not read. And so Bruce taught them to read. And then he would show his captors that what they really longed for wasn't found in communism and socialism. It wasn't found in Das Kapital. What they really were longing for, what they really were looking for, was found in Jesus Christ, and his captors would be converted. Well, they kept on having to move Bruce from camp to camp because he kept uh, bringing conversion to his guards. And the thing is, is that there are many people in our country today that their hearts long for the right things, but they're looking in the wrong place to find them. They think that they're going to be found in a progressive agenda that takes away from, from one group of people and gives to another. And uh, then there are those on the other side that are just fighting to hold on to what they hold dear and to their traditions. And one of the traditions that's being attacked Is our country being a Christian nation? And yet, sadly, it seems that both sides in this chaos that we're in are throwing aside our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's amazing the way things are coming about. And uh, we saw all this beginning back in the 50s, and I think it's pretty well lined out. Uh, There are those that are in in the Christian church that really think, that humanity, that people are going to usher in the kingdom of God. I think that that must have been Harry Emerson Fosdick's theology. When we look at that wonderful hymn, uh, We've a Story to Tell to the Nations, we do have a story to tell to the nations. But listen to this one line from it. For the darkness shall turn to dawning, and the dawning, dawning to noonday light and Christ's great kingdom will come on earth, a kingdom of love and light. Now that sounds really good, but what did Jesus say? He said that in the last days that we were going to be hearing of wars and rumors of wars, and that there'd be uh, earthquakes and all sorts of pestilences happening and things like that. Jesus was saying things were not going to be getting better and better until humanity just ushered in this wonderful utopia. Instead, things were going to get worse and worse until God has to intervene. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I would not be a bit surprised if the shout that Jesus made, it says that he's going to descend with a shout, I would be a bit surprised if that shout was not enough to where he has finally had enough of what we are doing to each other. Well, with all that behind us, let us look at the Apostles' Creed. I want us to look at these words, I believe he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, these simple words consist of two complementary truths. First of all, Jesus is coming again. And secondly, Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The New Testament refers to the second coming of Jesus in more than 300 verses. That means that one in every 13 verses deals with some aspect of our Lord's return to earth. It is so central to the New Testament that Christians everywhere have always believed that Jesus will return someday. And though we differ and we argue over the details, Christians of all varieties unite in believing that Christ himself will return to the earth. Jesus said in John fourteen three, I will come again. Now here are five words that help us understand what that means. His second coming will be, first of all, personal. It will be Jesus and not some substitute. Next, it will be literal. It will not be a vision or a dream or the fulfilling of a vision or a dream. Next, it will be visible. Every eye will see him. Next, it will be sudden, not a gradual return. And then, finally, it will be unexpected. We see in Scripture it's going to be like a thief in the night. Acts 1.11 makes it clear that Jesus himself will one day return to the earth. It will be this same Jesus who is coming again. Twice in one verse, Luke uses the word same to tell us something crucial about the second coming. The same Jesus who left will one day return, and he will return the same way that he left. If plain English can have any meaning at all, these words teach us that Jesus is coming back personally, literally, visibly, and bodily. We might also add that his coming will be sudden and unexpected, in Luke 24:50 50 through 52, we're informed that as Jesus reached out his hands to bless his disciples, he began to rise from the face of the earth, evidently without any warning whatsoever. We can assume that his return to the earth will be no less surprising. This is really just a wonderful thought. The same Jesus who was born in Bethlehem is coming again the same Jesus who grew up in Nazareth is coming again. The same Jesus who turned water into wine is coming again. The same Jesus who walked on water is coming again. The same Jesus who who healed the nobleman's son is coming again. The same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead is coming again. The same Jesus who entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is coming again. The same Jesus who, betrayed, uh, who was betrayed by Jesus is coming again. The same Jesus who was whipped, beaten, scourged, mocked, and condemned to death is coming again. The same Jesus who died on Golgotha is coming again. The same Jesus who rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning is coming again. The same Jesus who ascended into heaven is coming again. <coughs> That's what we mean when we say Jesus is coming again the actual historical figure that lived over 2000 years ago on the other side of the world is returning to the earth again there is an event on the horizon that is more marvelous more startling more amazing more blessed than anything that has happened in the last 2000 years the literal visible bodily return of christ to the earth no event may seem less likely to modern men and women yet no event is more certain in the light of inspired scripture now that brings us to an important question where are we on god's timetable i want to give you two simple answers number one no one knows the day or the hour of his return and it's dangerous to be overly dogmatic regarding the signs of the times. On the other hand, the Bible gives a detailed picture of the events surrounding the second coming. God has revealed to us the general picture of world events in the days leading up to Christ's return. The simplest thing to be said is, keep your eyes on the Middle East. That's where the story started, and that's where it will come to an end. It is no coincidence that the eyes of the world are riveted on the Middle East at this very moment. The final great act of human history will take place not in Tokyo, not in New York City, nor in London, but in Jerusalem and in the nations surrounding Israel. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely consider these facts. There's a clear pattern of events laid out in the Bible concerning the last days. If you put together the various strands of prophetic teaching from the Old and New Testaments, you discover a fairly detailed picture of the end-time landscape, morally, politically, spiritually, militarily, and economically. There is an amazing similarity between our world and the world the Bible describes at the end of time. If you doubt that, take your Bible in one hand and the newspaper or your iPod or your iPhone or uh, your tablet and see how well what you read in the news and what you read in the Bible fit together. We may indeed be the generation privileged to see the coming of Jesus Christ. Every sign points in one direction. It won't be long now. But before we sell our houses and move to the mountains to wait for the Lord's return, as some misguided souls have done all through history, let us heed the words of 2 Peter 3, 3-10. In this passage, Peter addresses a puzzling question, one that bothered believers in the first century and troubles thoughtful people today. Why hasn't the Lord returned already? What's he waiting for? Does the 2,000-year delay mean he's not coming at all? Should we give up our Christian hope? Listen to Peter's answer. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation but they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, having been kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow keeping his promise. Now, this is underlined in my Bible, folks, and you need to hear this. Listen again. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He is patient with, with guess who? He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, you see, this passage is full of important truth. That desires consideration. I will just lift out three things for you to think about. Number one, despite what the scoffers think, the second coming is certain because God has promised it in his word. Secondly, the second coming will usher in a day of judgment for the ungodly. Notice the sequence of words, water, destruction, judgment, fire. Just as God destroyed the world once with water, the next time he destroys it with fire. For the ungodly, the second coming of Christ will be bad news indeed. Now, I say the ungodly, and this is so important. If you have already embraced Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, if you have purposely appropriated what he did on the cross as payment for your sins, and you have repented of those sins, and are endeavoring to live your life now with Jesus as Lord, you have already been judged. Your sins have been judged, and he has paid for them, and you are now his, and you will be with him forever. So, that's so important. Now then, This is just it. The last thing, the third thing here, the second coming is delayed to give people a chance to come to Christ. And here's the good news. The delay the scoffers talk about is actually God's gift to them. He purposely delays the Lord's return in order to give men and women more time to repent. Verse 9 reveals God's tender heart toward the lost. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He does not enjoy sending people to hell. Contrary to popular opinion, he is not some crazed old man in a white beard laughing while he hurls lightning bolts to the earth. For 2,000 years, he has restrained himself. He has held back the final judgment in order to give rebellious men and women one more chance to surrender their arms and to yield allegiance to Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, I would not be a bit surprised if that shout when he returns is enough. When we see how people hurt each other and it grieves us, don't you know it grieves him? And there will come a time when he will decide that the pain and suffering that we're causing each other isn't worth holding back, bringing an end to it anymore. As the creed says, Christ will eventually judge the living and the dead. All must stand before him and give an account. No one can escape that day. Now then, this is so important, brothers and sisters. If Jesus were come to um, I'm going to ask you this. If Jesus were to come back today, would you be ready to meet him? If you say I hope so or I'm not sure or you can't really know, then you know what? You are not ready at all. If you don't know him, you aren't ready to meet him. But you can be ready by opening your heart and trusting him as your Savior and Lord. And if you don't know, I encourage you to run to the cross. Lay hold of the bleeding form of the Son of God. Rest all your hope in what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross and rose from the dead on your behalf rest your full weight on Jesus, pin all your hopes on him, lay aside your trust in anything or anyone except for Jesus Christ alone. We ought to face the future with optimism. The world looks at all the problems and says, is there any hope? For those who know Jesus Christ, there is an enormous hope. If he comes today, we win. If he comes in 50 years, we win. If we come in a, if he comes in 1,000 years, we win. These are great days to be alive, brothers and sisters in Christ. The greatest days in all human history. Think of it. We may well be the generation privileged to see the return of Christ. The smartest thing you can do is be all in for Jesus. Trust him completely so that if he comes today or tomorrow or next week or in a hundred years, you will have no regrets, but you will be ready to see him when he returns. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.